The reading today is from John chapter 21, verses 15 to 25. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Then he said, then he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at a table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, everybody. Morning. Uh, Now, what we really want uh, you to get into your minds and into our hearts is that our vision is to be deep and wide, okay? We want to be deep with our relationship with Jesus and wide in our sharing with it. Uh, I think I probably shared with you before that there's a a famous story of C.S. Lewis being interviewed on a radio program. And he was asked the question, are you high church or low church? Now, if you're not into all these things, you might know what that means. But somebody who's high church could be into bells and smells and, you know, really traditional religious forms of worship. And low church is a bit more kind of guitars and open neck shirts and all that sort of stuff. So he was asked, are you high church or low church? And he said, I'm deep church. I'm deep church. I thought that was a very good uh, response. Uh, And just last night, I read, um, well, actually, I was forwarded by uh, Bishop Ken Clark, uh, and he forwarded me a little quote from Richard Foster. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people in the church or gifted people in the church, but 
of deep people in the church, of deep people in the church. And that's what we want to be. We want to be a deep church. And if you look at this uh, we titled slide, you'll see that the, the series that we're going to have over the next number of weeks uh, is entitled The Enemies of the Soul. The Enemies of the Soul. Because what I want you to see is that the, the enemy, the ultimate enemy, the devil, but also the connected enemies, the world, the flesh and the devil, their desire is to keep you as a shallow person. All right? They want to keep, first of all, the plan, the demonic plan is to stop you from becoming a Christian. And if you do become a Christian, they want you to be a shallow one. And our desire is that each of us, myself included, would defeat these enemies of the soul and would enter into our divine destiny, which is to be deep uh, Christians. And I read this quote from a a theologian called Ronald Ruhlheiser. He, He says, this is the danger. So we end up as good people, but as people who are not very deep. Not bad, just busy. Not immoral, just distracted. Not lacking in soul, just preoccupied. Not disdaining death, depth, just never doing the things that we need to to get us there. Now, if the devil's desire is to keep us in this position of shallowness, uh, we're going to address some of these toxic things, these toxic cultures, these things that we may not even be aware of that I truly believe keep us in the shallows. And they don't just damage our souls, but they damage the church. So I hope you're up for that. I just want to pray as we just begin to face some of the enemies of the soul. Let's pray together. We're going to pray a dangerous prayer that Emma quoted last week from Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Search me and know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. 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 Well, folks, um, I, uh, I, I made the mistake yesterday of posting a picture of uh, our family in uh, Disney, Euro Disney, okay? And uh, not only did I make the mistake and the Zara was absolutely raging at me for the picture, but I also made the mistake because I think everybody assumed we were there at the moment uh, and kept on, you know, people who were in France were saying, oh, here are you, we're nearby. And I'm like, no, we're not, we're three weeks away. Um, so, uh, but we were, we were waiting in these lines and, and some of the things you went to see at Disney were just amazing. Uh, but we waited in this line for 75 minutes just to walk into a room and meet a girl dressed up as Princess Yasmin. You know, I could have done without it. 75 minutes wait. But as we were waiting, uh, you do have wee things to look at. And one of the things was there was, a, there was a magic mirror on the wall. And it was like digital, you know. So every once in a while, there was a face appeared and a bit of, you know, fire or smoke or whatever around it. And I just remember thinking about it at the time. And the one thing that occurred to me is... That, that, that that lady, that evil queen, she stood in front of that magic mirror every day, didn't she? If we move to the next slide, sorry. Uh, she stood in front of that magic mirror every day 
And she said, magic mirror, not mirror, mirror, that's the Mandela effect, okay, magic mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all, okay? And that lady, uh, her soul was fed, uh, her pretty shallow soul was fed by believing and knowing that she was the most beautiful person in the land, okay? Uh, And that was okay, until the day when she went to the mirror and said, magic mirror on the wall, who's the first of them all? And she got the bad news that she was not the most beautiful person anymore. And she was screaming and screeching at this mirror to know who is this person who's fairer than her. And of course, that's when the murderous intent against Snow White begins, doesn't it? And she sends uh, the huntsman to bring home her heart. And I wonder, have you ever sort of deeply analysed that? But essentially, that shallow, insecure queen with murder brewing in her heart was a person who was struggling with comparison. Think about that. Struggling with comparison. She was happy as long as she knew she, she was the most beautiful, but as soon as she knew there was even one person more beautiful than her, it caused a rupture in her ego. Comparison is a shallow, joyless, restless measuring of oneself against others. A shallow, joyless, restless measuring of oneself against others. And this is common, I think, to every single human being on the planet. Okay, uh, I, I think that would be true to say. Because comparison, if you think about it, it is a form of judgmentalism. Comparison is something that when we walk into a room, we are weighing up whether we are better or lesser than the people surrounding us. And some of us do it more than others, but we all do it. You know, I, I was struck, I went to this thing called General Synod uh, uh, a few years ago. And I remember I was, I was standing at this uh, breakfast uh, table, uh, or sorry, breakfast sort of bar with, uh, with a minister. And uh, I, I know the person who followed him in, a, in his previous church. And I said, oh, your successor's had a very difficult first few uh, months because he's had all of these funerals. And the minister answered me back. He says, I, I had far more funerals than that when I started. And I said, uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. He's doing, he's doing quite well, isn't he? Well, things were in a great way before we, I even left. You know, he was so bringing everything I said back into relation to himself. And this is common with all of us that we play this game of comparison. It's a form of judgmentalism because if you remember in the Garden of Eden, how could you be tempted if you were in a place of perfection? How could a serpent possibly uh, tempt anybody when they had access to these incredible delights of the Garden of Eden. What does he do? If you actually think about it, he gets them to compare themselves to God. He says, the only reason why God doesn't want you to eat of that one uh, prohibitive tree is that if you did, you'd be like him. You'd be like him. He's above you right now, but if you eat of that fruit, you'd be like him. And a rupture begins in the ego, just like it did for the the wicked queen 
and they decide they want it. Now remember, what tree did they get tempted to eat from? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now who arbitrates in society over good and evil? A judge. And the only one who was ever meant to be a judge of this earth, the judge of all the earth, was God. But as soon as Adam and Eve took that fruit, they became judges. And the first judgment they made was that it was bad that they were naked and they were ashamed and they wanted to make coverings for themselves. And ever since that day, ever since humanity ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we have been judging one another ever since. And you'll see it every time in the scriptures that you see brothers mentioned, there's always a fight. Always a fight. You look at it. If you look at the very disciples, you'll see that they are jostling for importance. It has always been the case ever since we ate of the fruit of the tree of good and evil that we have become many but insufficient judges of what is right and wrong and who is in or out. And so we all have a magic mirror within us where we look into ourselves and we ask, are we good enough? Are we good enough in relation to others? Are we good enough in relation to all the people around us? Jesus was different. Jesus walked through this world not comparing himself to others, but with his eyes on his calling at all times. He only did what he saw his father doing. I wonder if you ever had this, the experience where you come home after, after a night out with your, with your friends or something like that. Maybe some of you are thinking, when did I ever have a night out with my friends in recent years? But uh, you come back for a night and you think, why did I say that stupid thing? Or, or why did I make that stupid joke? Or why did I make that cutting remark? And you just cannot realize, you can't figure out, why on earth did I do that? And you realize that being cool might last a moment but being holy would last forever and you you really regret it. Jesus never had that moment. Jesus was able to walk through this world not comparing himself to others, not saying little things to put him above other people, but he only did what he saw his father doing. He was totally, totally orbited by his calling. But that is not the case for all the young men who gathered around Jesus, all his disciples. And the one that I want to focus on, uh, who we've already heard that reading from Ross about, is Simon Peter. And Simon Peter, uh, the, the writer John Tyson calls him the apostle of comparison. From the very beginning, Simon Peter uh, was concerned about his position within the disciples. And he's among uh, the group of young men Jesus' disciples, who are beside the most humble man in history, Jesus Christ, but are having an argument over which one of them is the greatest. Can you imagine that debate beside Jesus? Which of us is the greatest? And at the Passover table, uh, when Jesus tells the disciples that they're all going to fall away, Peter says, I won't. I won't, even though they all fall away, we read in Mark 14. I will not. And Jesus says, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
Peter's convinced that Jesus is wrong. He says emphatically, if I must die with you, I won't deny you. Peter thinks he's better than the other disciples, but comparison, as uh, Theodore Roosevelt said, is not only the thief of joy, but it also leads to a very fragile soul because Peter's resolve doesn't pass the test. And we see him in this little picture weeping. We read in Luke 22, and this is the third denial, about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with Jesus, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. What a moment. Peter's third denial after his lofty claim. And just then the rooster crows and it says Jesus looked at him. You know, theologians have tried to figure out for centuries now, you know, what look was on Jesus' face as he looked at Peter, as he was uh, imprisoned, as Peter let him down a third time. Was Jesus' look a look of disappointment? Was it a look of anger? Was it a look of love? What was that look that Jesus gave to Peter at that moment? But whatever it was, verse 62 of Luke 22 says that Peter went outside and wept bitterly. When Jesus arose, the reports came from the women that he really was risen. And what we read is that when Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome entered, uh, presumably an angel speaking on behalf of Jesus, told the women, go and tell his disciples and Peter. That's what the angel said. Go tell his disciples and Peter. And if you had an insecure heart and you had a shallow soul and you were a person who just compared yourself to other people all the time, what would that phrase do to you? Go and tell his disciples and Peter. Would you think, oh no, why did they mention me by name? Okay, I am really in for it here. And Peter, I am really in for it. I have really messed up. He's angry. Or he might have thought, why does it say, tell the disciples and Peter? Am I not a disciple anymore? Okay, am I kicked out of the disciples? Imagine what his heart would do. Did Peter think he was in for a rebuke? Did he think he was going to be uh, excommunicated or something? And then he's in the fishing boat and he sees Jesus on the shore. And again, commentators have tried to figure out for so long, why does Peter, why is Peter the first one to put his coat on and jump into the water and wade ahead of the other disciples to meet Jesus? Why does he do this? And most commentators would say it's because he loved Jesus and he, he was so desperate to see there isn't Jesus and that's why he was so eager to get in there. But others believe that it's because Peter, embarrassed by what he'd done, embarrassed by his promise that he would not deny Jesus, he wanted to get and speak to Jesus on his own before the other disciples could hear. 
He wanted to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, just before the other guys come, I'm really sorry about that denial. Now that's up to you to decide whether uh, what Peter's reasons might have been. But Jesus does a beautiful, gracious thing in Peter's life. Peter, who compared himself to the others and said, I will not deny them like they will, who has now become shattered, his ego has become ruptured because he can see that he's actually let Jesus down more than any of them. Three times, Jesus ministers into that by asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter, of course, says, of course I love you. You know I love you. And three times Jesus pulls out the thorn of denial with a question, do you love me with devotion? But I wonder if you ever noticed that right at the end of um, this counseling session, this, 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 uh, this, this session of Jesus just rebuilding Peter's broken soul, right at the end of this session, Jesus tells Peter, you know, you're going to you know, die for me. You're going to be led away for me. You're going to give your life for this gospel as you feed my lambs. Right at the end of that, Peter has a relapse. Okay? Now, you know the way in like monster movies or whatever, you always think you've got the monster killed, right? And then everybody's complacently just chatting away and suddenly it gets up. Doesn't it? You have to turn around and shoot it again or whatever. That happens to Peter here. Now remember, his whole issue is comparison. And then just as Jesus is ministering to all this denial, suddenly the monster rises up again because Peter goes, I'm going to die. What about him? Okay. And he points to John who has followed after them. I'm going to die. What about him? Again. He's not having this relationship with Jesus one-on-one. He's bringing other people into it. He's comparing himself to others. You know what Jesus says to him? What is it to you? What is it to you? What about him? He can live forever if I want him to. What is it to you? See, Jesus wants to free Peter from comparison. Because to compare ourselves to others is to miss out on what God has us. Are you a person who struggles with comparison? Here's two very simple uh, cures for it just as we come into land. One is the realize the verdict is in and the other is the upward call of Christ. To realize the verdict is in, imagine being the evil queen Imagine every day having to go and say, am I the most beautiful, please? It's really important that I'm the most beautiful. Am I the smartest? It's really important that I'm the smartest. Am I, am I impressed, impressive to other people? It's really important that I'm impressive to other people. Going to that mirror every day is real slavery. And every day you're asking, am I good enough? It's like back to the old uh, illustration that old Christian preachers use, you know, to chariots of fire, where Eric Liddell says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. That's who we should be. Where the other guy says, when that pistol goes, I've got 10 seconds to prove that I deserve to be on this earth. 
realize the verdict is in. You know, Madonna in Vogue magazine, she says this. I wonder, do we any of us relate to this? My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is talking about boasting. And he says this to the Corinthians, I care very little how I'm judged by you. I care very little how I'm judged by any human court. Indeed, I don't even care how I judge myself. My conscience is clear. It is only the Lord who judges me. Paul knew enough about what the Lord thought of him to be free from the judgment of others. Do you? Here's some judgments of you if you are a Christian in Scripture. You are God's child. You are a friend of Jesus Christ. You have been justified. You have been united with the Lord and you are one with him in spirit. You have been bought with a price and you belong to God. You're a member of Christ's body. You have been chosen by God and adopted as his child. You have been redeemed and forgiven of all your sins. You are complete in Christ. You are free from condemnation. You are assured that God works for your good in all circumstances. You are free from any condemnation and cannot be separated from the love of God. You have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. You've been hidden with Christ. God will complete the good work he started in you. You are a citizen of heaven. You no longer have a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. You are born of God. The evil one cannot touch you. You are significant as a branch of Jesus Christ, the true vine. You have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. You are God's temple, a minister of reconciliation for God. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, and you are God's workmanship. That is what the scriptures say about you if you're a Christian. The the judge has batted down whatever you call that thing, hammer. (laughs) What is it? Aye, that. Okay, he's done it. You're no longer having to go to that mirror and saying, am I good enough? Am I better than her? If I hear somebody else spoken of positively, I think, why are they not speaking about me positively? He has banged down that thingamajiggy. And those are the things it says about you. And if you don't believe them, you need to get the Bible open and you need to get on your knees and you need to say, Lord, make it known to me that this is true so that I can be free from comparison. Here's the second cure. Hear the upward call. What does Jesus say? Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Ministry. And activity to serve the Lord is a wonderful safeguard to comparison. Jesus says, become a shepherd for me. Stop jostling with my lambs and feed my lambs. You know, it changes the dynamic completely, folks. Let me tell you, when somebody that you are comparing yourself to becomes the center of your prayers, 
You know, when I was in Lisbon Cathedral, I remember I was sitting listening to another, I was young back then, okay, not 41 like I'm now, but I was listening to a young preacher, and I found myself saying in my heart, he's not that good, really, you know, that's not great, you know, he could have finished that a lot better, and I found myself being really critical in a way that I'm generally not critical of other speakers, and I wondered why, and the reason was because I was comparing myself to him, and I really didn't want him to be better than I was. And when I realized that, I started to really pray for this guy and really pray that his ministry would have an impact. And I can tell you his ministry has had a tremendous impact, this person. But I realized there was something in my heart that wanted him to fail. And imagine that. Is that ever the case with you? Instead of jostling with my sheep, feed my sheep. Instead of comparing yourself to them, have a calling of looking after them. I love a little story of a lady who came to a pastor or a rector and said she's going to leave the church. And uh, the pastor asked her why, and she gave him a list of reasons. She said, uh, the ladies are always gossiping, the men are hypocrites, the worship team aren't living consistent lives, and people look at their phones during the service. Okay? And in order to make a point, the pastor tells the lady that he's going to give her a, a, flow, a, gla- a glass flowing with water. And he tells her, I want you to walk around the church three times. And when she comes back, he says, uh, did you spill any water? And she said, no. And he said, did you notice any hypocrites, gossips, or people on their phone? And then he said, the reason why is because you were focused on what you were doing. You were focused on your task and not on the lives of others. Peter, the apostle of comparison, is transformed by the grace of Jesus, and he abandons horizontal comparison and embraces the upward call of Christ. Have you embraced what he says and what he wants you to do in a way that causes you to take your eyes off others? I love that Peter, from this moment on, he he actually preaches, I want you to outdo one another in showing honor. Near the end of his life, he writes this. He says, care for the flock. This is 1 Peter 5. Care for the flock, not just because you must, but because you want to. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. By the end of Peter's ministry, he's got it. This is not about horizontal comparison. It's about caring for each other and having our eyes on the upward call of God in Christ. Final thing I want to say is that for the rest of Peter's life, the only time I can find, uh, not in scripture, but in the story of Peter, that he compares himself again, is when he comes to die. And many of us all know that when he comes to die, he's imprisoned in a Roman prison, and he is to be crucified. But before he dies, he compares himself to somebody else one final time. You know who it is? Jesus. And what we read 
in the writings of a guy called Eusebius. Uh, he says this, Peter was crucified head downwards for he had requested that he might suffer in this way. Why? Because he didn't want to be compared to Jesus. Let's stand together. I'll invite the worship team forward.